I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we look to the text to discern the outcome of the process of seeking life in Hashem. We are still in the book of Numbers, and as you are all familiar with, Numbers is composed of three parts. This is not something new for our study, but what is new is that this week we reach the end of the first of these three parts. Every chapter that we have read up to this point is part of the introduction, the setup for the journeys that Israel is about to embark on. And in some very real ways, this chapter serves as a bookend for the beginning of this portion of Numbers, the close of this first portion of the book of Numbers. And in some sects of Judaism, this chapter is the end of a whole book of the Torah, and it contains another whole book of the Torah. But we'll wait to explore this particular aspect until just a little bit later. So in recognition that this week features a close to what has come before, let's take the time one last time to go through the flow of ideas that have been presented to us up until now. First off, let's remember the purpose of this book. Its name in the Hebrew is Bamidbar, which means in the wilderness. This book is the story of Israel's journeys in the wilderness. And what is the purpose of the wilderness? To travel to the battle for the land that God has promised to them so long ago. At the end of this journey, there is going to be fighting. And so the book of Numbers opens with a census, a counting of the fighting men of Israel. Each man was to have his head lifted and to be counted among the hosts of Hashem. Each man was to be recognized as part of a larger force and given the honor due to the warriors that were to take the land. The book opens with giving honor to the warriors of Israel for the role that they are going to play in coming battle. And then the organization of the camp was addressed. How they were to camp. How they were to move. The defensive postures of the camp when not on the offensive. And this defensive posture is one that is alluded to in several places in scripture as representative of the entire force of Israel. And this posture it places the people of Israel around the place of God. Hashem as the king in their midst, going into battle with them and empowering them to fight. But there were some people who were not counted in the census, some who were not to act as the outward offensive force, but rather acted as the bodyguards, so to speak, of Hashem, to surround his place and to ensure that no one unauthorized approaches his space. But this role was not being filled by those who would usually fill this role for their God. The way that the world stated that it was the responsibility of the firstborn to fill this role, but the firstborn have been replaced. And this new group that's replacing the firstborn, well, they now have the honor and the duties of caring for the holy things. They now face the responsibility and face the danger of doing it wrong. This one tribe now serves in the tabernacle and lives close to their God. 
No longer is every tribe represented in those that served God in this capacity. That type of organization structure would quickly be exploited and fall apart as tribes jockeyed to get their sons in the most important duties and roles. Instead, it was everyone from one tribe that was given this role. And this method of organization was not popular with everyone. There would be those who would grow dissatisfied. Those who, because of the shame that they perceived directed towards them, might decide to commit adultery against the God that they have taken as their husband by worshiping other gods. Now, the text does not come out and state this clearly, as is common with God. It steeps this truth in the relationship of a husband who suspects his wife of adultery, but it does set the precedent for those who rebel. A curse is leveled of being cut off from the people of Israel, is what a person can expect if they commit idolatry. Because Hashem is a jealous God and a jealous husband, he will not share his bride with another. He will not allow his covenant to be diluted. But there's no need to be jealous and to cause this to lead you off to serve other gods. Just because you are passed over for the full-time role of service to Hashem does not mean that there is no other option or opportunity to serve. If their desire is truly to serve Hashem, then they still can. If their motive is selfish and out of a desire to be elevated to a position of renown, then this entire move cuts those with this motivation off from service. And for the next three chapters, the text then speaks on the ideas of dedication and service in three specific ways. One can simply take the vow of a Nazarite, and with this vow and all that comes with it, a person can enter into the service of Hashem on their own free will. But this too is not limited to the firstborn or even just to men. This is something that anyone can do. Again, selfish motives are removed from the equation. And besides people, there are things that can be dedicated to the service of Hashem. Things that are His alone and people can give to that end. Again, with our own free will, we can give not only ourselves, but our things to His service. But among Israel, there are those who are called to His service. Those who don't necessarily get a choice. Those like the Levites who are appointed to serve. But even with all of these people dedicated to Hashem, even with all these options of human leadership, there is one truth that is inescapable. It is the word of God that must serve as our guide. And there will be times in our course of our service to Hashem that we will encounter conflicting commands, when the impetus will be to do one thing that is commanded by God, but there will be reason of cleanliness, practicality, or another high ideal that will prevent a person from doing what is commanded. In these cases, we must follow the guidance of God on the spot. We must listen to the Spirit and discern the weightier matter. And it's this that must always be our guide. We must be led by His Word, but we must also be led by His Spirit. Following one without the other will lead to failure. We must have both, the Spirit and the Word. And it is the Word that will say to move and to do. And it is the Spirit that will tell you when and where. And that is where we are up to this point. The setup for the travels in the wilderness. And this week, we finish this first portion of the book. The wrap-up of what has come before, and the last bits of preparation for what is yet to come. So let's read this week's Parsha, and then close off this first part of the book of Numbers. Numbers 9, verse 22 through 10, 36. Whether two days, or a new moon, or a year, that the cloud lingered above the dwelling place to dwell upon it, the children of Israel camped and did not depart. 
but when it was taken up, they departed. At the mouth of Hashem they camped, and at the mouth of Hashem they departed. They guarded the charge of Hashem at the mouth of Hashem by the hand of Moshe. And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Make two silver trumpets for yourself. Make them of beaten work, and you shall use them for the gathering of the congregation and for breaking camp. And when they blow both of them, all the congregation shall meet before you at the door of the tent of appointment. And if they blow one, then the leaders, the heads of the thousands of Israel, shall gather to you. And when you blow a shout, the camp that lies on the east side shall depart. And when you blow a shout the second time, then the camp that lies on the south side shall depart. They blow a shout for them to depart. And when the assembly is to be assembled, you blow, but you do not shout. And the sons of Aaron, the priests, blow with the trumpets, and it shall be to you for a law forever throughout your generations. And when you go into battle in your land against the enemy that distresses you, then you shall shout with the trumpets, and you shall be remembered before Hashem your Elohim, and you shall be saved from your enemies. And in the day of your gladness, and at your appointed times, and at the beginning of your new moons, you shall blow the trumpets over your ascending offerings, and over your sacrifice of peace offerings, and they shall be as a remembrance for you before your God. I am Hashem, your Elohim. And it came to be on the twentieth day of the second new moon in the second year that the cloud was taken up from above the dwelling place of the witness. And the children of Israel departed, setting out from the wilderness of Sinai, and the cloud dwelt on it in the wilderness of Paran. Thus they departed the first time according to the mouth of Hashem by the hand of Moshe. And the banner of the camp of the children of Judah departed first according to their divisions. And over their army was Nachshon the son of Aminadav, and over the army of the tribe of the children of Issachar was Nathaniel, the son of Tuar. And over the army of the tribe of the children of Zebulun was Eliav, the son of Chelan. And the dwelling place was taken down, and the sons of Gershon and the sons of Merari departed, bearing the dwelling place. And the banner of the camp of Reuven departed according to their divisions. And over their army was Elitzur, the son of Shadeir. And over the army of the tribe of the children of Shimon was Shalumiel, the son of Tzerashadai. And over the army of the tribe of the children of Gad was Eliasaph, the son of Deuel. And the Kohathites departed, bearing the set-apart objects, while the dwelling place was set up before they came. And the banner of the camp of the children of Ephraim departed, according to their divisions. And over their army was Elishamah, the son of Amahud. And over the army of the tribe of the children of Manasseh was Gamliel, the son of Peratzur. And over the army of the tribe of the children of Binyamin was Avidan, the son of Gidoni. Then the banner of the camp of the children of Dan, which formed the rear guard of all the camps, departed according to their divisions, and over their army was Achiazer the son of Amishadai, and over the army of the tribe of the children of Asher was Pagiel the son of Ochran, and over the army of the tribe of the children of Naphtali was Achira the son of Anan. Such was the order of setting out of the children of Israel according to their divisions when they departed. And Moshe said to Hovab the son of Reuvel, the Midianite, Moshe's father-in-law, we are setting out for the place of which Hashem said, I give it to you. Come with us, and we shall do good to you, for Hashem has spoken good concerning Israel. And he replied to him, I am not going, but I am going to my own land and to my own relatives. Then he said, Please do not leave us, because you know how we are to camp in the wilderness, and you shall be our eyes. And it shall be, when you go with us, then it shall be that whatever good Hashem does to us, the same we shall do to you. So they set out from the mountain of Hashem on a journey of three days, and the Ark of the Covenant of Hashem went before them for the three days' journey to seek out a resting place for them. And the cloud of Hashem was above them by day when they went out from the camp. And it came to be whenever the Ark set out that Moshe said, Rise up, O Hashem, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. 
And when it rested, he said, Return, O Hashem, to the countless thousands of Israel. As chapter 9 closes, we read something that we feel should be part of the last chapter. If not the last chapter, then at least it should be connected directly to the section of the cloud leading the people. In fact, that whole section on the cloud, it's his own chiasm that these two last verses, they finish off. So why would we choose to finish where we did last week and to pick up here this week in the center of a thought? Especially when that thought can help us to recognize that following the Spirit means following His timing. I mean, God said, go take the land, so let's just go and do. We're fulfilling God's command by doing so. But as we see here, following the command of God means following His timing as well. And the timing is set by the Holy Spirit. If Yeshua had just entered into his ministry, knowing that his call was to go and to preach the gospel, the arrival of the kingdom, he would have skipped the wilderness. And yet he demonstrated that the wilderness, as much as I hate to say it, is as much part of going into ministry as the actual doing of the work of the kingdom. But all of this is reasons why we should have included these verses in our previous lesson. Why did we wait until this week for these verses? Well, because in chapter 10, we read the command to create silver trumpets to be used in various capacities of announcement and celebration. These silver trumpets were what the people would hear when they were to move. And these trumpets were blown by the priests. If there had not been a visible signal in the form of a cloud, then this would be the only signal that the people would have had that it was time to go, that it was time to fight, that it was time to assemble. These trumpets formed by human hands, blown by human lungs and lips, all that the average person, the layman, would have as their sign to go. That is why these two verses were kept until this week. You see, when our mind sees a break in the text, whether that be a chapter break, a page flip, or even a verse break, there is a part of our mind that makes a disconnect. It's so very easy when seeing these things to completely disconnect what came before, and we see this all too often. And something that we should never lose sight of is that the command to move or to do, if it is coming from men, then we can ignore the call. If it's coming from God, well then we must move. And how do we tell the difference? It will be the Spirit that will confirm the difference. Now, that was easy for Israel. They had a cloud that they could look to and see if the move was of men or of God. We, however, have that still small voice that will speak to us and confirm, this is the way, walk in it. In my own experience, it comes in the form of a sense of peace as I pray over and I contemplate the choices that are before me. The one that gives me peace and doesn't fill my heart with trepidation and uncertainty is the way that God is calling us to walk in. It's our challenge, though, to distinguish the call. God doesn't speak the same way to everyone. But the trumpets described here, they're for more than simply calling the movement of the people. The first stated purpose for these silver trumpets was for the purpose of gathering the people. When both were blown, all of the people were to assemble at the tabernacle. When only one of the two was blown, only the leaders in Israel were to assemble. Now, this is a great practical way of signaling throughout a camp that would cover many acres that there was a meeting occurring and who was to come to the meeting. 
But this idea of gathering at the sound of a trumpet is not something that stops with Israel in the wilderness or even with the temple. This is a command for all time and is one that we will find used in other places in Scripture. For example, Isaiah 27, 12-13. And in that day it shall be that Hashem threshes from the channel to the river to the wadi of Mitzrayim, and you shall be gathered one by one, O children of Israel. And in that day it shall be that a great shofar is blown, and those who are perishing in the land of Assyria and the outcasts in the land of Egypt shall come and shall worship Hashem on this holy mountain in Jerusalem. Matthew twenty four thirty through 31 And then the sign of the Son of Man shall appear in the heavens, and then all the tribes of the earth shall mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the heavens with power and with much glory. And he shall send his messengers with the great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his chosen ones from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. 1 Thessalonians four fifteen through 18 For this we say to you by the word of the Master, that we, the living, who are left over at the coming of the Master, shall in no way go before those who are asleep. Because the Master himself shall come down from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of the chief messenger, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead and Messiah shall rise first. Then we, the living who are left over, shall be caught away together with them in the clouds to meet the Master in the air. And so we shall always be with the Master. So then encourage one another with these words. Now we often hear it said in Messianic circles that it's at the sound of a shofar that the dead of Messiah will rise. And it's a shofar that will put in place of nearly every reference of a trumpet in the New Testament. But there's ample evidence from here that the instrument that's being blown, especially to gather the people of God, is in fact the silver trumpet, not a shofar. But that's not guaranteed. For example, it's a shofar that was referenced in Isaiah 27 for the gathering that's prophesied there. In Psalm 81.3, it's the shofar that's to be sounded in the new moon at the day of the festival. Psalm 81.3, blow a shofar in the new moon in the covering of the day of the festival. In Joel 2.15, it's the shofar that's used to call the sacred assembly. Joel 2.15-16, blow a shofar in Zion, set apart a fast, call an assembly, gather the people, set the assembly apart, assemble the elders, gather the children and nursing babes, let a bridegroom come out from his room and the bride from her dressing room. So why do I bring this up? One, because I think too much emphasis is put on the shofar specifically. I've rarely seen a topical teaching on silver trumpets, but there are thousands of teachings on the shofar out there. Two, because it gives us a handle on understanding what adding to the Torah looks like. This is one of those topics that comes up a lot around the holidays, whether it's Messianics criticizing Christians for their celebration of Christmas, or Messianics criticizing other Messianics or Jews for the celebration of Hanukkah. As invariably happens, these criticisms will drag out Deuteronomy 4.2 and accuse the other side of adding to the Torah. Just in case you're not familiar with this particular verse, Deuteronomy 4.2, Do not add to the word which I command you, and do not take away from it, so as to guard the command of Hashem your Elohim, which I am commanding you. So when all we've ever read in this Torah is silver trumpets being commanded to be used for calling an assembly or announcing a new moon or a festival, what are we to make of this? Are Isaiah and Joel and the psalmist, are they adding to the Torah? I submit that they're not, and the command to not add or take away from the command is speaking of a much deeper principle than exacting obedience. But I've covered this before, and it is kind of off topic, so we're going to move on. 
After we read of the blast for calling a gathering, then we read of the blast that indicates the moving of the camp. If they blow a shout, in my translation, that's an alarm in the ESV, King James Version, and NET, then the camp is to prepare to move. Now, the Hebrew word that hides behind this shout or alarm is the word teruah. Yes, that's right. The same teruah as in Yom Teruah, or the Day of Blasts, also commonly referred to as the Feast of Trumpets. So, what is a teruah, and how does it differ from the other form of blowing that we read of earlier? Well, first off, let's get a distinction between the Hebrew words used. So, the word used here is the word teruah, which we've already established. The word used earlier in the chapter to signify a blast on the trumpet is the word takah. The word takah meaning to blow or to give a blast, but it also carries the meaning of to clap or strike, thrust a weapon, or to pledge oneself to something. The idea that binds all these together being that sudden or loud sounding. The trumpet is easy to see, as is the clap. A weapon thrust? Well, it's a sudden movement that, if it lands, creates a loud sound. And to pledge oneself? Well, this is thought to have come from the idea of clasping hands together in agreement. From this we can discern that takah blast is a single sudden blast on the trumpet. This type of blast may last for some time, however. A teruah, on the other hand, is a staccato blast. This word contains within it the idea of breaking something, a sudden alarm with many pieces. In teruah, we see used throughout scripture for an alarm or a warning, but also as a sound of joy and triumph. And specifically, a teruah is several staccato blasts on the trumpet. And the staccato blowing of the trumpet was the sign that it was time to move. Verse 7 makes it clear that the call for assembly is to be different than the call for movement or battle. In verse 9, we read that when Israel goes out to war against their enemies, they are to teruah with the trumpet. And it is this blast that will cause Hashem to remember Israel before Hashem, and he will then act to save them from their enemies. Now, this verse contains some very interesting ideas that I would like to explore for a moment. First of all is the association with the teruah call and the act of remembering, or zechar. You see, when we were in Leviticus 23, we read of all of the festivals that occur throughout the year, but there's only one that's connected to this chapter. I explicitly said it earlier, Yom Teruah, commonly known as the Feast of Trumpets, but the word trumpet is never associated with this holiday directly. Instead, there is another word besides teruah that occurs in Leviticus 23 that also occurs here that helps us to draw a connection between this passage and that. Leviticus 23 verse 24. Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh new moon, on the first day of the new moon, you have a rest, a remembrance of teruah, a set-apart gathering. This one place in Leviticus 23 connected to this one festival is the word zechar. Okay, so not exactly. The word used is zechron, which means memorial or reminder. But its root is zechar, or to remember. And in the very next verse, we see the same thing. Blow the trumpets over your festival offerings, and they shall be as a zechron for you before Hashem. Now this time, it is the same word that's used in Leviticus 23. Again, we see the idea of a memorial this time not connected to the type of blast. This is a takah, or a blast that's used for assembly. And from this we see that the word remembrance is connected to these silver trumpets, 
not to the type of blast that's blown. And returning to verse 9, it is this blast on the trumpet that will cause Hashem to remember Israel. And remember, <laughs> Hebrew is an active language, and so the word remember does not simply mean to call to mind, but rather it means to act on something that has happened in the past. In this case, it's a call to remember the covenant and promises that Hashem has made concerning salvation from enemies. Now, there is an occurrence in Scripture of several trumpet blasts that are then followed by God acting to destroy the enemies of His people. Revelation 8, 9, and 11 speak of the seven trumpet judgments that are blown by angels in the heavenlies, and each trumpet blast precedes a catastrophe that damages the beast system, or those who are under the power of the beast. The first trumpet Hail and fire fall on the earth in a repeat of the eighth plague of Egypt. The second trumpet, a mountain is thrown into a sea, and a third of the sea creatures and ocean-going vessels are destroyed, and a third of the sea is turned to blood. The third trumpet, a star named Wormwood, falls from the heaven, and one-third of the world's flesh and one-third of the world's fresh water is made bitter. The fourth trumpet sees one-third of all light removed from the sky, whether sun, moon, or stars. The fifth trumpet sees these crazy GMO locusts that are released from the earth and they sting only those who have submitted to the beast. And this sting, it produces unbearable pain and lasts for months. But those who are stung will seek death but be unable to find it. The sixth trumpet sees an army of 200 million horsemen released into the earth to slaughter, kill, and destroy one-third of mankind. And they're led by four angels that are chained beneath the Euphrates. And the seventh trumpet, a declaration is made from the heavens that the kingdoms of this world have been turned over to the Messiah to be his. And there is thunder, lightning, great hail, and an earthquake. And the time comes for the reward of the saints to be given to them. Several blasts on the trumpet. From Hashem's perspective, perhaps these sound staccato. I'm just speculating, but the result is undeniable. The trumpets are blown and the enemy is destroyed and salvation is achieved for Israel. The blast on the trumpet calling God to act in remembrance of his covenant with his people and to act for their salvation. The fulfillment of this promise given here in Numbers 10. Moving on, the next part of chapter 10 then recounts the heads of the various tribes and the leaving of the camp for the first time. Once again, as each side leaves, we read of only one banner representing three tribes for a total of four banners for all twelve tribes. And interspersed between the sets of three tribes was a tribe of Levi, a detail that was not mentioned before this point. So the marching order went something like this. Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, then Gershon with the curtains and coverings, all the cloth of the tabernacle in their two carts. Alongside them was Merari with the pegs, poles, boards, and sockets in their four carts. Then came Reuben, Simeon, and Gad. Then came the Kohathites, carrying the articles of the tabernacle on their shoulders, everything but the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark led the way, we find out in verse 33, as it set out before the people to guide the way. Finally came the last six tribes, all one after the other, Ephraim, Manasseh, Benjamin, Dan, Asher, and Naphtali bringing up the end of the procession. And this section then serves as a close to the first part of the book, as we are reminded of the leaders of the tribes from chapter 1 and the marching order of the tribes from chapter 2, the roles of the Levites from chapter 4, all overlapping together in this one short portion of text. 
a bookend to this first part of the book of Numbers. As they're leaving, Moses goes to his brother-in-law, Hobab, and he extends an invitation for Hobab to join them on their trip to Canaan. But before we get there, I'd like to skip ahead to the final few verses and say a few words on these two verses before coming back and exploring this episode between Moses and Hobab. So in verse 35 and 36, they contain an odd feature that's found only here in the Torah and in Psalm 107 seven times. This feature is something that is known as an inverted noon. Now, the noon is a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's the one that makes the N sound. N. But here, surrounding these two verses, there are two noons that are turned backwards, or upside down, or drawn in a Z shape, or in various manuscripts. But they're they're written in some odd way. Now, when the printing press became widely used, the printers, well, they simply turned their current noon backwards, or flipped it upside down. And that has stuck as the convention since then. But what is the purpose of these inverted noons? Well, there are several explanations of this from various rabbis throughout the centuries. One rabbi states that the noons are out of place and this text is out of place, don't you know? They should occur earlier in the text to denote the position of the ark before the order of the tribal column and to denote the position of the ark as leading the column. And in traditional rabbinic fashion, there is no agreement. So others state that the 85 characters that occur between these noons, they serve as a model for the minimum amount of congruent text that would be required to be saved from a fire due to its holiness. If there is a fire and you know of 85 congruent characters of the Torah somewhere in that fire, then it is your duty to go and to rescue that snippet. If it's only 84 characters, then let it burn. Now, this view also states that the noon represents the word ner, or light, indicating that any bit of the Torah of this length or longer is a light to the one who has it. Another view, and perhaps the most widely accepted view available, is that the inverted noon here is in number, it serves as their own set of bookends. The book of Numbers up to this point is one book, Israel still at peace, serving God with all their heart. Then there is this book that is between these noons, which is these two verses at the end of chapter 10. Then there is a third book in the book of Numbers that is the remainder of the book. And it is with this view that the rabbis state that because of this, there are actually seven books of the Torah. There's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers 1 through 10, verse 24, Numbers 10, 35 through 36, Numbers 11 through 36, and Deuteronomy. And yet others claim that this is a hidden book of prophecy, or that this section of text separates two retributions of God, the first being that the people traveled from the mountain of God, and the second that the people grumbled. And in between, we find this section. However, according to scholarship, this is simply a scribal mark that was incorporated into the text, and we can infer this because Greek scribes made liberal use of an inverted sigma to denote sections of text that are of particular interest. So, as you can see, there's no consensus as to what these noons indicate. There's not even a consensus as to whether this section was part of the original text. Some rabbis claim that this was inserted by a later rabbi. So, what can we understand from all of this? Well, I think that the conclusion that we should draw from this is that 
No one knows. And this is one of those places where perhaps we should just get comfortable in the not knowing. Not every mystery of the word of God can be solved, and conjecture at this point serves no one. But we should at the least be familiar with this oddity in the text in this place and the controversy that surrounds it. And that, in my mind, well, that's enough. So with that, let's return to the conversation between Moses and Hobab. Now, Hobab, as Israel leaves for Canaan, is presented with a choice from Moses. Come with us. You can be part of us. You can participate in our journey, and you can partake in our reward. You can serve our God. And so the challenge comes. Does he abandon his family and all that he has known and follow this strange single God that obviously has power to a place that has been promised to them, but is currently occupied by overwhelming forces? Or does he return to what he knows, to the place of comfort and safety and familiarity? Now, this is a choice that all who come to the truth of Messiah must face. How do you organize and prioritize your life? In Matthew 19, we read of a similar story. A rich young ruler, as he is commonly known, comes to Yeshua and he asks a question about obtaining eternal life. We all know the story. Yeshua gives one answer about obedience, and that's not sufficient for this man. There must be more. And so the answer comes, sell all your stuff, leave your family, come and follow me, and you will receive great reward. But in the end, the man goes away sad because he has many possessions. The man was asked to leave his family and his possessions behind and to follow this new Moses into the promised land of the kingdom of God. This man is given the same challenge of the rich young ruler. And this man, we assume, makes the same decision as Hobab and decides against following into the promise and he returns to his home. Well, just after this encounter, Yeshua says something that seems hard to understand and even harder to apply. In Matthew 19, verse 29 through 30, he says, And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold, and shall inherit everlasting life. But many who are first shall be last, and the last first. Those who put their priority on God and his mission above family and wealth and every other consideration will be rewarded with everlasting life. It's they who will reap a hundredfold as Isaac did when he went into Gerar during the famine. And this is something that plagues the body of Messiah. Many have lost family and friends and even jobs because of their choice to follow the Messiah. Our culture says family first, but God says me first. And so that first choice is easy. But then come the concerns of the world and the challenges of living the life that the world says we should live. Fear and worry then consume our minds. And because of this, so many take their hands from the plow and they return home. They seek wealth. They seek comfort. And in the end, potentially miss out on magnificent blessing that could be theirs. Other things get put before the wilderness experience, and those people return home, as Hobab does, return to what's safe and known, return to family and friend, hearth and home. The wilderness, battle, 
That's too much when all my things are back there. My life is back there. The ones I love, the places I love, the things I love. And this is what Hobab does. He goes back home, to his home, and he leaves Israel to face the wilderness without him. He says no to the promise because of the challenge that precedes the blessing. This is something that we must not forget because the lesson from last week doesn't end last week. Yes, following the Holy Spirit will lead to hardship, testing, trial, and temptation. Yes, you may go without the finer things in life for a time. You may be forced to eat the same thing over and over and over again because it's all that you have. You may face danger or lack or extended discomfort and there will be endless worry at first. You may not be satisfied with the position that God has for you. You may be jealous that others seem to have more honor or gifts or an easier time than you. Yes, you will face hardship, and you will be asked to do things that seem absolutely crazy. But Moses nails it in verse 29. Come with us. Journey through this wilderness led by the Spirit of God alongside the rest of Israel. Face this hardship at our side as part of our family. And in the end, you will receive good. For God has promised good to us. And that good will become the possession of all who undertake this journey and don't prove to be rebels or transgressors. And Hobab turns this down. And in verse 31, Moses makes a plea that I feel every time that a person steps aside and turns back within my local community. With Hobab, it's, please don't leave us because you know the way is hard. We need you. We need your skills. We need the skills you bring. We need the gifts and the talents that you have been given. You can be our eyes, Moses tells Hobab. You can be our ears. You can be our feet. We need your gifts to be exercised in the community. Please don't go. Please don't give up on the blessing that God has for your life. Please don't go for your sake. But mixed in there is a bit of jealousy. We sure could use your help on our journey. It is going to be tough, and it's going to be even harder without you. The fact of the matter is is that we will get there with or without you, but we sure could use you. This is the impassioned cry of so many congregational leaders and pastors to those who can't be persuaded to leave behind the trappings of their life in Egypt or Moab or Babylon. God, God will be faithful to us regardless of what you choose. But we would love to have you along for the journey. And in the end, it'll be completely worth it. And so I make that plea to you. Is God calling you to do something that you know is going to be extremely difficult? Are you facing a choice in following the Spirit that will put you at odds with friends and family, that will make you a laughingstock to those still trapped in Egypt? Is the hardship that will come because of the following the leading of the Spirit turning you away? Don't go. Don't turn away. Join us in the wilderness. Because in the end, there is good to be had, blessing to be found. 
And according to Yeshua, that blessing is not just eternal life, but reaping 100-fold of whatever you have given up for his sake. So don't leave, please. Join us in the challenge. Join us in the wilderness. The end will be completely worth it. Because the promise for those who darish chai, for those who seek life, and not in our current flesh or in existence, but by passing through this current existence, in this we will find life. And that is the conundrum. Those who lose their lives for the sake of Messiah will find life in the end. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.